the most argumentative and difficult customer will ever have with regards to price is ourselves. We fight ourselves on price constantly. I can't do that. I can't charge that much. I'm going to lose all my customers. I do this. I wouldn't stand for this. And it's this internal mind battle. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm chatting to Mike Michalowicz. He's an entrepreneur and an author. He had two tech businesses, which went very well built them up, exited them for a lot of money. His third venture was an angel investor. And over a period of time, he managed to give all of his money away and go bankrupt. So we talk a little bit about that journey. To get out of that hole, uh, he became an author. And his first book was The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. We touch on that, but most of our conversation today is about one of his later books called Profit First, which I thought was really pertinent to the position that many businesses find themselves in in this post-COVID world. We talk about how entrepreneurs really need to run profitable businesses and how rather than the bottom line or year end putting profit last, we have to put profit first. We have to extract value from our businesses and reinvest it in a really deliberate way. We talk about the impact that Tim Ferriss had on his ability to earn money as an author. And we talk about one of his later books, fix this next where he developed the idea of having a business hierarchy of needs an absolutely fantastic conversation with mike i enjoyed it immensely i hope you do too i'm mike mccallowitz i'm the author of profit first clockwork fix this next and some other books and i'm broadcasting today from my office it feels good to be in an office during the COVID crisis albeit i'm one of the only people here uh from new jersey and i've devoted my life to the process or I should say the commitment to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, this perception of success when it's actually fraught with struggle. And uh, through my books, I hope to resolve that. Fantastic. Why did you write Profit First? So uh, I, I discovered a statistic that just, to me, was shocking. And I experienced it personally. There was a study initially conducted in the U.S., became a global study by a U.S. bank. They identified of the 30 million small businesses in the U.S., and a small business defined by the SBA is $25 million U.S. or less. So that's pretty big. Of the 30 million small businesses, 83% are surviving check by check. They don't have enough money today to pay bills tomorrow. Therefore, they're in desperate sales mode. The study went on to be global. There's now approaching 200 million small businesses. We were almost there. And same phenomenon. And the, the question came to mind was, how come, Dominic, so many people start a business with the intent of financial freedom? That's why I started my business. I, I want to have the freedom to do what I want when I want and not worry about bills. Yet the biggest worry I have is bills. 
that made no sense to me. And then I looked at um, this formula we follow and found a flaw in it. The foundational formula for business is sales minus expenses equals profit. It's taught in every accounting book. It's taught everywhere. And it makes logical sense. You must have sales. You subtract expenses you incur. And what's left over is profit. Problem is it doesn't make behavioral sense. It's a human response. When something comes last, it gets delayed. It's insignificant. I, I would never say, you know, I'm scared about my health. That's why I'm putting it last. Or I love my family so much. That's why I put them last. You would never say that. Yet that's what we say about profit. In fact, it's, it's in our vernacular. We call it the bottom line, the final take, the year end. All these things say not now. And that's why I discovered most businesses are never achieving profitability. So what I teach in Profit First is the new formula. It's sales minus profit equals expenses. And simply as revenue generate, is generated for our firm, we immediately extract the profit, hide it from our business, and run our business off the remainder. It's the pay yourself first principle in our personal finances applied to business. I mean, some of the businesses that, that I've worked with, certainly uh, some of the smaller businesses, they don't even know how much money they're making. It's only when their accountant does the books at the end of the year that actually know whether they're making any money. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it usually takes the wind out of them. So right, most business owners don't know how much money they're making, the profit. They don't consider it because you know we look at year end. So once a year we look at profit, it's usually not there. And we say, well, maybe next year. So literally the consideration for profit gets delayed 365 days. The problem also though with uh, the accounting report, that's what's called an accounting profit. Entrepreneurs have a different definition. We have what's called cash profit. And a cash profit is actual cash. So the business owner at the end of the year, when they hear they have a $10,000 profit, they expect there's $10,000 sitting in the bank. And the accountant's like, oh, I'm sorry, you already spent that money. It's an accounting profit. You don't have it. So it's, it's a stab, it's a second stab to the heart. What we teach in Profit First is what's called cash profit. So when money comes in, we take that money, that percentage, we hide it away from the business owner. Most business owners admittedly don't do accounting. We simply do what I call bank balance accounting. We log into our bank account, see our balance. If there's money there, we, we spend it. And if there's no money, we panic. That's the way we operate our business. We don't know how to read a P&L cash flow statement, balance sheet. We definitely don't know how to tie those in together. So we take this simpler method. So Profit First is designed around that. The fact that most entrepreneurs don't read their accounting, they simply read what's in the bank balance. We set these accounts up there. And um, Profit First is more sophisticated than just moving that one account of profit. There's other allocations that happen. But by allocating money to its intended use before you spend it, you operate then within the confines of what's truly available for the business and ensure profit. You know what you're spending on your main line. You know, what are you paying yourself? What are you spending on marketing? You know that because you've, you've ring-fenced that money before you commit an expense. That's exactly right. So, so there's this behavioral principle called Parkinson's Law. Behavioral theorist studies human behavior and he says, the supply and demand curve in economics is fundamentally flawed. I mean, it makes sense as demand increases for something that more suppliers will appear. But he says it's fundamentally flawed when it comes to the behavior because behaviorally as demand or supply increases, our demand meets it. Here's a classic example of consumption. I like chocolate chip cookies. You put one chocolate chip cookie in front of me. I eat one. You put 15 in front of me. <laughs> I eat more than one. So as the supply increases our consumption, well, the same is true for cash. You put a dollar in front of a business owner, they find a way to spend it. Then you put $10,000 in front of them, they find a way to spend it. And it continues on. 
it seems uncanny, but for most businesses, as revenue does its slow growth trajectory up, expenses seem to run in, in this crazy parallel. And it's not crazy. It's Parkinson's law. We see what's available in that bank balance and we spend it. So the way to manage that behavior is extract out its uses first. So there, there's this gap between the income, you take out profit, you take out your compensation, you reserve for your tax liabilities. Then you see what's truly available to operate your business as expenses. And this gap is your profitability. Okay. And so you said, you said before we were started recording, you'd had two businesses, you'd exited those successfully. And then it was your third business where you ran into a wall. What, what were you doing? What were the first couple of businesses? What were you doing? And, and what's the story with the third? Yeah. So I was in a tech space, tech services. First company was set up computer networks. I sold it to private equity. Second business was computer crime investigation, a little more or racy business. Actually, my company was one of the main investigators in the Enron trial, just to give you some context. Right place, right time, exploded in growth, was acquired by Robert Half International, they're a Fortune 500. And I thought I was God's gift to entrepreneurship. You know, I got the Midas touch, look at me. So I decide I'm gonna start this third business as an angel investor because clearly anything I touch turns to gold. So I start multiple businesses, I'm making it rain money, and I'm chock full of arrogance and ignorance, which by the way, Dominic, I looked up in the Webster dictionary, what is the word uh, defined by arrogance and ignorance? It's a dick. I was, a dick. <laughs> I was a dick. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I had to bring levity to it because that's who I was. And so I started this business as an angel investor. I wasted money. I didn't have any right to be in that space. I had no competency there. And it took me about two years. I evaporated all my wealth. I lost everything. I lost my, my house over it. I lost my, my, I lost my possessions, my cars. The one thing I didn't lose was my family. But I did have to go home to my family and say, we're going to lose all this because I failed. And this wasn't like, I wasn't speaking clearly. I was sobbing. I was so ashamed. I had not accepted emotionally this was my situation. I saw my bank account dwindling so fast logically but emotionally, it's like, well, one client will save me. I can somehow sell this. An investor will swoop in. But uh, on this particular day, uh, my bank, my accountant was telling me to declare bankruptcy. I, I didn't, but he told me, he's like, you got to take evasive action. And so I came home. I told my family. I told my daughter. She was nine at the time. I said, I can't, can't pay for your horseback riding lessons anymore. It was $20 for a group session. And this is the turning moment. She ran out of the room She, because I, I was crying. She was crying and I said, holy crap, I, I am the provider. You know, we're all entrepreneurs in part to be providers for ourselves, our family, our community. I'm the provider and I'm the jackass that has taken this away. And so I'm sitting there just crying and, and she's, she's so scared of me. She runs away. Well, ends up she wasn't running away. She ran to her bedroom and she grabbed her little piggy bank and she ran back to me and she was, daddy, daddy, since you can't provide for our family, I'll start providing for us. And uh, now I'm actually getting emotional thinking about it. <laughs> I, um, it was devastating, Dominic, devastating. And I um, was so ashamed. That became the seed for change. And just one little caveat. It wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to start writing books that resolve my own entrepreneurial challenges. It was a seed. But the change took about two years. I, I went through depression. I started drinking a lot. I was an insomniac. I, str I struggled with just self-hatred, but it did start becoming the seed, the turning moment. And then I committed to uh, writing books. 
that I would explore everything I don't understand about entrepreneurship, simplify it to serve admittedly myself and to serve other entrepreneurs that struggle with the same thing. Ah, oh, fabulous. And what was the, what was your first book then? First book was called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. It was this radical, uh, soft, admittedly sophomoric book that I wanted to challenge the norms. And it, it, it built a cult following. It was this very simple method of leveraging lack. Because what I realized is that it's the lack of money, for example, that triggers innovation. It's the businesses that actually are funded that are the least innovative as a general rule. It's the lack of experience and knowledge about an industry that makes us become the industry challengers, the rule breakers. And so that's what that book was about. And uh, it was sold successfully enough. I got a book deal with a, with a big time publisher and I've been with them ever since and written every book with them. Very good. And but you've turned you've turned some of your books or your books have been turned into into programs as well, haven't they? Yeah, I've done that with now four, actually five of my books. So it's funny, someone came to me and said, uh, you'll never make money being an author. Actually, a lot of people said that to me. And I, I discovered there's a question to ask when the naysayers come to you. I started asking, well, tell me about your experience as an author. And I found well, a lot of these people said, Well, I've never done it. So that, that's just hearsay. If an established author says you can make no money being an author, uh, I, I listen. I, I met this guy, Tim Ferriss, who had just come out with a book called The Four Hour Workweek. And I asked him the same question. He's like, I said, Can you make money being an author? And he's like, Yeah, you can become a millionaire. So that opened my eyes to it. I said, How do you do it? He goes, You sell a lot of books. And he goes, And then you build the uh, offering behind it. And that was the realization that there was an opportunity to, to build it. Now, I, I don't. I'm an entrepreneur by experience. I don't want to run businesses. I want to own businesses. I've actually changed my title. I, when people ask me, are you an entrepreneur? I say, no, I'm a shareholder in small business. Just so my own context is right. I own equity in some of these businesses and others I just licensed out fully, but I'm a shareholder. I, I, I render opinion and direction, but I don't work in those businesses. And that came from, uh, from Tim's direction. He was the seed for that. And so today, yeah, Four, and I'm just releasing a fifth book, have licensees, businesses that bought the rights to be the exclusive provider of the intellectual property of the books. And it's, it's a beautiful relationship too, because my job now is to write more books, to promote my existing books, to do the work I love to do. And these businesses um, are delivering a service behind the books that readers want. Are you having more fun as an author than you were as a business, a runner of businesses? Yeah. I love, <laughs> yeah. I love being an author. Like we gotta do this stuff, like <laughs> talking, going on stage, getting emails. Like I get, I am very blessed. I get emails regularly from readers who say, I've read your book. It served me in some capacity. When, when I was running my computer business, the regular emails were, our computers are down. You suck. You know, uh, get over here at midnight. I, I saw my wife and with this COVID situation, you know, I travel a lot now to speak. This COVID situation, I'm, I'm home. And she's like, Mike, like you come home at five o'clock and like we're having a glass of wine. Uh, we're talking. She goes, when you had a computer business, five o'clock is when things really got started. You know, between nine and nine and five in the day, I'm telling all my employees things to do. And between five and nine the next morning, that's when I'm actually getting work done. She's like, you were never around. And if you were physically, you weren't mentally. So this is, admittedly, this is a lot more fun for me. And so if we, uh, if we go back to profit first, because certainly at the moment, 
certainly lots of businesses in the UK and, and in the US will be challenged with cash flow. What can we take from Profit First, some top ideas or mentality that, that people should be thinking about to try and claw themselves out or at least get some clarity about what the future might look like? So with Profit First, regardless of what your business status is now, you still need to take profit. We can't say, well, I'm not going to be profitable to get through this because that's just starts a sometimes rapid descension into problems. So we must maintain a profit percentage. As you take your profit first, that's going to reduce how much money you have to operate your business. Then the question that's going to come about very quickly is, do I have enough money to operate my business? I was saying, if you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. That's your business now speaking to you, saying there's something fundamentally flawed. There's only two ways to get that corrected. One is to reduce costs, but you can only reduce so much. The second thing is to increase margin. I believe what we're experiencing now, in 2008, we had the great recession. I think now we're in the great reinvention that business needs to change. And if we are willing to differentiate ourselves, to offer new things in a new way, we can capture the new form of demand. And so that's what we need to do. Take our profit first, see what's available to operate our business. If there's not enough, that's our business decreeing we must reinvent ourselves, do something new. Yeah. And have you got have you got any good examples that you've seen of people doing that? Yeah. So restaurants, and I love talking about restaurants because they're so negatively affected globally. Most restaurants in my own community here on the street I live on, there's 20 restaurants, which is actually an absurd number for the population here. It's well overrepresented. Well, these restaurants now that were barely getting by when things were great, shut their doors. Of the 20 plus restaurants, I would say 70% of them stopped doing business for an extended period of time. About 30% immediately went to a takeout model. A few of them are trying to come back now with a takeout model. But only one, not only didn't on our street, but in, in our entire community here, the county that we live in, only one changed the model and it moved to cooking classes. They realized that when the business uh, stopped acting as normal, they still had a significant asset, which was their past patrons. They emailed their past patrons and said, hey, we're gonna start a cooking class. We have five or six menu items that are our most popular. You can now cook them at home and we'll teach you how to do it. Every Monday night, weekly for five weeks, we'll do this. And you'll be able to reconnect with your neighbors because you're not seeing them now. So now they have their one chef come in, no waiters, no staff. The one chef is preparing a meal on the video, on Zoom or whatever. These clientele of you know five or 10 families or more are paying $200 for a cooking class where they were paying you know $25 for a meal. So you know, $200 for a cooking class times the, the five neighbors, that's $1,000 for an hour class. And now it's, it's working so well, they're not just doing this one class, they're doing multiple classes. So it's actually a much more profitable model for them. And they realize, oh my gosh, we don't even need our restaurant. We can get a small studio space. So they're now renting new space. So their costs have dropped, their margins have gone up. That, that's a great reinvention, in my opinion. Yeah, what it's, and one of my clients is interesting. They've been, uh, they, for the last two years, they had been promoting the idea of remote uh, sprints, remote 
facilitating remote sprint software development. And of course, this is, this has put them absolutely in the position where, you know, Etch then had a product ready to go, and you know they've been they've been training Google and McKinsey and NASA on you know how to run software development remotely. Isn't that amazing? There, there's a writers group I'm in, so because you know I write daily. That started the same thing. They call it Sprints too, and uh, it's just a collective of authors. There's maybe ten of us that meet at six in the mornings. The first thing we do for an hour, and the facilitator who charges for this, all she says is, "Is everyone ready? Start writing." And then everyone goes on mute, and you write for 25 minutes. You come back off. She goes, "How are we doing? Everyone's good. Good. Start writing." She says for the entire session, three sentences, cumulatively, and she charges $100 a head for a month. You know, it's a great model. And the benefit is not the her teaching. The benefit is the collective. When people are working together, even in a virtual environment, we actually get more done. I think it's a, a tremendous model. And because you're paying for it, you turn up? Oh, yeah. I ain't missing <laughs> one of those. I'm not missing. I'm a stalwart. I'm there every single time. And, there, and there's value in the in the community. The value I see is paying that $100 a month is if I had to facilitate that on my own and get 10 people together, now I have the responsibility to make sure people keep showing up. That's off my plate. It's an investment in me getting stuff done and someone else taking care of the logistics of getting a group. If I try to do this solo, it's kind of like exercising. If I just showed up anytime I wanted and I had to write, I wouldn't write it at all. That this forces discipline. And in the in your in your profit first method, you talk there about taking, I guess, slicing off the top money for certain things. And what are the buckets that you that you think people should be taking away before they are running their business? You know, what what are the things you take off the top? Yeah, so I I suggest uh, four distinct buckets. But it's set up by having five accounts. So I'll explain the five accounts. The first account is an income account. It's a depository only account. It's the inflow of cash. Most people uh, have one account at their bank or maybe a couple, but one account, and they call it the primary bank account. All their deposits go in there, but they also take all their expenses from there. And what I equate that to is if you're celebrating a holiday, Christmas, and you take out the serving tray with ham or whatever you're serving, you you don't tell the guests, hey, everyone, fight for it, everyone for themselves. You know, instead we allocate from a serving tray to all the guests. And the reason we're apportioning food that way is to ensure, of course, that every guest has something to eat. Well, in our business, that income account is a serving tray. Money comes in, but you don't tell your business, hey, whoever needs uh, money, here's the serving tray, eat off here. It simply is a depository account so you can see what's cumulatively available. You then divide up into these four remaining accounts. So one is profit. And the profit, just to be clear what profit is, is a reward for a shareholder for taking risk. We as business owners have invested either through time and money, often a combination, in getting this business off the ground. And it is of great service to our globe. 7% of the world population are business owners. 93% of the world needs to work for a business owner. So that's profit is a thank you for supporting our global economy. The next count is owner's compensation. It's different than profit. Profit is a reward for taking risk. Owner's compensation is your pay for being what's called an owner operator. 
So if you worked inside your business and you had to replace yourself with another employee, what would you have to pay that person? Probably a pretty fair wage because of all the things we do as small business owners. That's your wage. And the owner's compensation is what we should live our lifestyle off of. Profit that comes out quarterly is a nice bonus check, but it's not a standard expectation. So this actually starts to normalize our home life. You know, I know entrepreneurs and was one of them that every time money would come home, I was spending it instantly. If I could get that nice new car and show it off to my friends, I felt great um, until I couldn't afford the bills and I felt panic. So owner's compensation is now what I live my lifestyle off of in every quarter when the profit distribution comes out. As we're recording this, we're at about 15 days away from the next profit distribution. When that money comes out, that's a little bonus check and I can do what I want. Then the next account is called tax. Tax is a reserve of money to pay your personal and corporate tax liabilities. And sadly, I found for most business owners, the biggest bill we'll experience associated with our business that we are not prepared for is taxes. And for many businesses, that's the biggest cost we have with running our business is the income generates a tax liability. And I've traveled now the globe. I've yet to be to visit any country anywhere in this world where the government doesn't stick its long, sticky fingers in our business and pull money out. So we have to prepare for this. And the business, in every case, can pay the taxes. You have to talk with an accountant. There are certain times you have to do it in a special way, but the business can reserve that money. The final account of these four kinds of slices is then the operating expense account. And that's the money left over to operate your business. And, and just to give this some kind of illustrative context, if $1,000 comes into my business, I have $1,000 in the income account, I may divide up 15% of that or 20% of that, say, into profit. Well, it's $200 there. Another 30% may go to me to pay myself, so I have $300 there. Another 10, 20% may go to uh, the tax account. So that remains now 30% left, if I did the math correctly in my head, for the operating expenses. So when I when I used to see I had $1,000 or pounds available to run my business, I'm 1,000 pounds, I got 300 pounds, is a radical shift in what's truly available to operate your business. And what type of success stories do you see? I mean, I guess people read that book. And as we were saying before, lots of people start businesses because they, what we're saying, people want the freedom. And then actually they've got more stress, less freedom, working harder, paying themselves less than if they were employees. What, why be in the 7% if it's going to be easier to be in the 93%? So I guess people write in and give you their transformational stories. It's, it's the best. We, uh, our little team here, we're, we're a very small company with 12 people. We have a daily huddle meeting and we share the successes and we are so blessed they now come in multiple times a day. So um, a favorite recent story came out of uh, Australia and there is a uh, business in Canberra, Australia. They raise uh, horses for farm use, but also some entertainment or uh, racing. It is a cutthroat industry. It's very difficult. Thin margins, the classic thing. Husband, wife starts it. They're in the business for 20 years. They've never made a penny. They, they live like paupers. And they, uh, they're at each other's throat. It's, it's jeopardizing their marriage. So they, they discover Profit First. And what Profit First teaches is start taking profit, start slow, and let it grow. So maybe start at 1% or 2% profit and keep on pushing it bigger and bigger, which then reduces the OPEX, which then forces you to become innovative. Well, they said, you know, a year into this, they're making profit in an industry that's not profitable. So this 
horse industry is known for being a, a, a labor of love, but you don't make money at it. And now they're making money at it. What's so fascinating and I loved about that story, and also the, the net effect was their marriage had strengthened. You know, the, the lack of money was a constant sore spot. Now it's not anymore. But what I love about that story is uh, just because the industry struggles doesn't mean you need to struggle in that industry. When they started taking their profit first, it forces them to think in a different way. How can we acquire uh, food less expensively? How can we uh, sell these horses at a higher premium, making, making them even more specialized? And that's what they did. And now uh, they've been on solid ground for, for quite a few years since they implemented Profit First a while back. It's interesting. There's two things I, I, I think of. One is my own example at IT Lab when I arrived there in the 2008 recession, we were losing 65,000 a month. We had to put the prices up 50%. And we didn't lose any customers when we did that. And so often in people's heads, you know, because you were talking earlier about one of the things you can increase the margin, right? And so often people are trapped in this in the prison of their own heads about what they think, what, what it's worth. In this case, people are selling horses for more than they were before. And one of my other clients, probably, where are we now? Maybe two years ago, their margins weren't where they were. And I said, do we think we could get 1% more? And they said, well, yeah, maybe. So I said, okay, well, let's put the price at 1% this month. And next month I went back to them and said, did anybody notice? And they went, well, you know, the salespeople had to look it up, but you know, we, nobody, nobody complained. So we did 1% a month for 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, at the end of 12 months, they said, you know what? Let's do one and a half percent a month. Now we're getting bullish. And so they've done another year at one and a half percent a month. And so it's had a massive impact on, you know, where, where they what they're charging now and where they were two years ago and totally changed their perception about, you know, and it, it, I know what triggered that thought was just when you were saying there, you start with profit and you say it's just a little bit. It's not, you don't have to go from zero to 35% and, you know, fire all your staff. It's it's just like, where do you want to be? And, and let's get there. Let's have a plan. You ratchet up. I, you know, I love studying consumer behavior. And uh, what one thing I found, actually there's very two things I find interesting. One is that consumers place perception. They associate perception with cost or investment. The higher the cost for them, often the higher the perception of value. So, you know, if I put a, a, a diamond right in front of you right now and say, hey, Dominic, that, that's worth about 10 bucks. Do it with what you want. You're like, oh, it's a, it's a cheap cubic zirconian. If I put that same diamond down and say, that's $50,000. Now it's like, whoa, be very careful with this. We got to put it in a safe. So our perception of what it is, is based upon the price point. That's our an immediate judgment. The other thing I found fascinating about consumer behavior is the most argumentative and difficult customer we'll ever have with regards to price is ourselves. We fight ourselves on price constantly. I can't do that. I can't charge that much. I'm going to lose all my customers. If I do this. I wouldn't stand for this. And it's this internal mind battle. In once, and what I love about your strategy is once you do it once and you have a win, you're like, oh, no, I didn't lose anyone. And we do it again. Then we start unwinding that that evil consumer in our own head. Yeah, it's just about taking one step, isn't it? You know, that's, the, that's, that's what triggered it because you were saying the same about the profit. But I think you're right about the tax. Just when people think they're out of the woods because they've got a bank balance, then the tax bill comes in and they're, they're often, they're, often they're then underwater and they're gasping for breath again. I'm, t- uh, it, I'm terrified here in the States for July 15th. So I don't know how it happened in the UK, but 
in the U.S., the government uh, said we're going to delay tax payments that are normally due on April 15th here till July 15th. And then they said we have another more wonderful news. And in June, right, actually right as we're recording this, the June 15th tax installment, we're going to delay that till July 15th. Well, the problem here is that does extend the availability of money to small business, but it does not relieve them of the responsibility to pay taxes. But many small business owners responded that way. They said, oh, government gave us free money. I don't have to pay my taxes. They didn't say you don't have to pay your taxes. They simply said, you don't have to pay them now. Well, on July 15th, two tax installments are going to be due. And due to Parkinson's law, I am frightened because these businesses now saw this money that they've been saving for taxes still sitting there. And they said, oh, I can spend this. And I'm hearing little anecdotal stories of businesses that have spent that money. My concern is a lot of small businesses have blown that money. And when July 15th comes, they can't pay it. The government's not going to say, oh, don't worry about it. We're all cool. The government is going to hit us in the head with a sledgehammer and say, pay us that effing money now. And small businesses say, I don't have it. And then there's going to be punitive action from the government. So I think there's going to be this big cash crisis, at least among small business on July 15th. That's what I'm afraid of. Well, and, and you know that because you've spent time with hundreds and hundreds of businesses around the world knowing that that's how they behave. Yeah. And listen to how I behave. I, 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 when I said profit first, I needed the system for myself because I sucked at managing money. And I still suck at it. I just, it worked very well because I know my behavior. And so I, I have these reserves. And, and what I do is with my tax reserves and my profit reserves, I can't even see them. They go to another account that I don't have login access to. So the money's sitting there. I can't touch it. I'm protecting myself from myself. So I know I'm secure. But to your point, most business owners don't. Well, it's funny. I had, I had a conversation uh, with a client last week and exactly the same thing they've got several million pounds in the bank and we were having the conversation about what if that money wasn't in the bank would anybody in this room have behaved differently in the last quarter if they thought we had no money and one person said yeah i'd probably have got rid of my poor performers quicker and i might not have hired somebody this quarter that's in, whoever that guy was or girl that's integral that's the truth and then people said, well, you know, but if we put in a different bank account, we still know it's there. And so I don't think we would have behaved differently. It's like, hang on, just said you would have behaved differently. <laughs> so it was, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's that the reason we had the conversation is because the CEO and I believed that the team would have behaved differently if the cash hadn't been there. If, if they'd felt that they had to make, they had to be cash flow positive in the next 90 days, they would have made different decisions than if they knew they had several million pounds in the bank. And, and, and if you run then each quarter with that intensity. You, you do, yeah, that's what I, I've been doing for now 12 years. I mean, it's, it's been life-changing. It's not just the number of the bank account, it's accessibility. When something's not easily accessible, that's when the behavior shifts. So I moved to the second account. I don't have online banking. I don't have checks I could write or a, a shiny card to withdraw money. The only way, and this bank's far away, I got to drive to the bank, get the bank. It's a pain in the ass. So and it's, it's truly, it sounds absurd, but it's truly that much of a pain in the ass. So the second the money gets transferred there, it, it's out of sight. It's out of mind. I got to work with what I have. And it keeps me thirsty, hungry. And, and so what you'll um, fix this next, what, what's the genesis of that? What should people go looking for there? <laughs> so it takes me about five years to write a book. And uh, 
I'm working on three, two or three usually at any given time. So I can turn them out quickly, but it takes me about five years. So five years ago, I queried my readership. I, I asked, I said, what's the biggest challenge you're facing this year? Now, admittedly, I'm not the most technically savvy guy with, with the internet apps because I must have triple clicked something. The same email went out saying, what's your biggest challenge this year on the same day, three times. And I got responses in some cases from the same people responding with different answers for their biggest challenge on the same day. <laughs> one, one guy said, this is funny, Dominic. One guy said in the morning, he's like, we have a sales problem. We need better sales mechanisms. In the afternoon, he says, we have a hiring problem. Everyone here sucks. We don't hire, right? In the evening, it was, we simply need systems overall. And by the next morning, it was clarity on vision. It became clear to me that the biggest challenge business owners face is knowing what their biggest challenge is. We rush to, there's so many apparent issues going on. You can just walk into your own office and within seconds be working on something because there's countless apparent issues. But the question is, what's the one impactful one? And if you're focusing on the apparent without knowing the impactful, you're, you're hurting your business. At any given time, there can only be one most important thing. By definition, most means one. There can only be one thing that the business needs from us most. I call that the vital need. So I wrote Fix This Next as a tool to pinpoint the one thing your business needs from you right now most so we can concentrate our energy on resolving that. Once that's fixed, the next most important thing will present itself. And we move now in a linear sequence as opposed to this haphazard address all the apparent and urgent issues that are there for the day. Uh-huh. And what, do you, what mechanism do you use for pinpointing filtering? it? Yeah. Yeah. So I call it the business hierarchy of needs. What I did was I analyzed uh, businesses and found that there's a common DNA for all business. Your business and my business, if we peel back the structure of it, the essence is identical. Just like, like the human structure, if you will. You know, Outwardly, we see each other differently based upon our gender, our height, our skin color, our accents. But when you peel back humanity, we're identical. The heart's in the same spot, the lungs in the same spot. If I, if I was going to the, the doctor because I'm having a heart attack, heart attack, she wouldn't say, hey, Mike, uh, your heart, is it in your foot? Because I, you know, it's always the same. Triage is always the same spots because it's, the critical organs are aligned the same way. Well, this is true for our business. The internal makeup is identical. There's five levels of needs. Foundationally, we need all need sales. It's the creation of cash for the business. Then we need profit, which is the extraction of cash. As money comes in, reserving it. Then we need efficiency, impact. The highest level is legacy. And this hierarchy works, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, in a very similar way. Foundationally, we must be breathing oxygen. That's what Maslow said. Foundationally, we must have sales. But sales alone is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Just like breathing air is necessary, but alone it's not sufficient. You can't just breathe and you'll be happy. you got to eat. you got to have protection. So we need sales. Once that's adequately satisfied, we start focusing on fixing profit, making sure we're extracting cash. Then we start bringing more efficiencies to the business. Then impact was just transforming our client's experience. The highest level is legacy. But we don't climb this like a ladder either. We'll bounce around. So if any time as we're going up, the foundation's cracking or we need to expand it, uh, maybe I've, I've extracted more profits, more efficient, I can go back to sales now, expand sales more to leverage what I've done and build up further. And I, I, as I study businesses, this business hierarchy of needs applies to micro enterprise where it's one person up to macro enterprise, like, 
like Amazon, the mighty Amazon, March 14th or whatever, they're focusing on furthering their impact, uh, achieving legacy. March 15th, COVID pandemic is in. There's a shutdowns going on. The mighty Amazon also, like many businesses, reverted right back to sales. Amazon said, we're moving to essential products, our prime benefits and other stuff we're going to reduce. They changed their model to serve the new standard. And that's how this hierarchy works. At any given time, you'll be working at a level, but a new fix will be needed and you have to adjust either up, but in some cases down to resolve it. Okay. Yeah. Well, that bit of the bottom, the ca- call it the cash execution cycle. And that, that sort of extraction of profit is actually part of getting out of that cash execution cycle. You can never end up, you can never end up with a legacy if, or even, or even a business that's quite often, I see people who've spent, I don't know, 15, 20 years in a business and now they want to retire and their business is worth nothing. Cause like without them, it, without them, there's no business. And so there is no legacy because they've, they haven't paid attention to that climbing the hierarchy and extracting profit. That's exactly right. I call it the get to give. You know, we, we, many of us have heard you have to give to get, you have to be a contributor in order for people to reciprocate. But in business is actually get to give. You need to get sales, the creation of cash. You need to get profit, the extraction of cash for stability. And you need to get order. Order is now the creation of efficiency where the owner can remove themselves from the business. So they're not carrying the business on their back. In order to give impact, transforming clients, to give the, the legacy, meaning the continuance of the business, and sadly, so many businesses try to jump levels. Um, not-for-profits are notorious for this. They say, you know, we're going to change the world. We're going to cure cancer. And they focus on curing cancer, but they don't look at sales, which is contributions. And they, they fizzle out. And honestly, a lot of four businesses should be recategorized as not-for-profits because they do the same thing. <laughs> you know? they're, not, they're not being run for profit. Yeah. No. Yeah. So we have to get those things. We have to get those things. And sadly, I see so many business owners building their business, believing it's an asset when it's really just a glorified job. They think they have something that someone else wants to buy. But what buyer in the right mind would say, oh, the day you leave your business, the business collapses. I want in. No way. And so that's this what I call the order level. The order level is where the business can operate itself. And if we don't achieve that, you, you don't have a turnkey business, it'd be absurd for someone to put value in you and buy you. The other thing I see happens is that people will say to me, we're not making any profit because we're reinvesting in growth, right? And that sentiment is not incompatible with profit first. It's just that with profit first, they'd actually be able to tell me what they were investing in, what they were getting for their money. Whereas at the moment, they're just hoping they're inve- they're hoping that the profit that they're not taking out is having, but your, your thing about Parkinson's law is probably true that they're, they're wasting most of it. They're not making a deliberate decision. They're just sort of bumbling along. You have very acute awareness. You're exactly right, Dominic. Here's the shocking discovery we've had. So we we have over 350,000 companies that have implemented Profit First. We have thousands of case studies. So we now have the, the data. And I couldn't believe we started seeing this. We're looking at businesses that implemented profit first and compare them to their contemporaries in growth, how quickly they're growing. And the shocking news was businesses that took their profit first grew faster than their contemporaries, which is the exact opposite of reinvesting and plow back. And the reason is exactly what you enunciated in that when businesses plow back their profit, 
which by the way, means you were never profitable. It's, it's a very soft term, plow back and reinvest. It simply means you spent the money. So profit and expense is very clear. If you spend the money, it's an expense. It never was a profit. If the money is distributed to a shareholder, that's profit. And that's the delineation. So these businesses say, we, we plow back profit. It's a feel good term. So we asked them, we said, well, what'd you do with that money? And they said, well, we, we spent it on advertising or whatever. We, we do Facebook ads because everyone's doing that. We said, well, what's your ROI? What was the what was the return you got? And I said, well, you know, it worked, we think. Um, what was your assessment before you went into it? They said, well, our friends were doing it. You know, there was no clear ROI. When we talked with businesses that took profit first, we said, how did you invest your money? They said, well, we didn't have much money to invest. So we were very, very selective. We decided to only do the things that worked. We heard about Facebook ads, but we analyzed it and said, it's unlikely we're going to make any money back there. Instead, we found a referral program or something with our clients had a higher degree of return. So we tested that out and we invested very little money in it, but we wanted to prove that it worked. And when it did, we started to put more money in it. So by businesses taking their money out first as profit, it forced selectivity. It forced analysis. Forced scarcity. It forced scarcity. Yeah. And that's why it forced, these businesses are growing faster because they, they pick the right things because there's not enough money to just try everything. Mm-hmm. But even if you try something, like trying three things at once doesn't help, you know, because you never really know which one worked. And it's funny, we were, um, I was looking to uh, expand overseas and I ended up talking to somebody at Dell, Dell Computers. And they said, you know what we did? We went into five European countries simultaneously and we failed. And uh, so we rolled back and, and two years later, we said, okay, we're just going to go one because now we have to make the decision about which one is the most likely to succeed. And then we made somebody really senior, their job was on the line for success. Now, all of a sudden, like everything was aligned. Everyone knew very clearly what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. And we'd only had one target. There was only, way, there was only one, one goal to score to win. And they were successful. And once they'd been successful, they did another one. And so it's just that, just that sort of bringing it all the way back and focusing your mind so you could, you know, just forces you to do less, forces you to make a better decision. I call it uh, multiple dials. So a manufacturer is, say, is manufacturing something and all of a sudden there's defects coming out. The way to resolve that is you go to the highest probability cause and you turn that dial, you apply the resolution. The thing manufacturers don't do is they don't go to all the possible causes and turn all the dials. Because if you did that, there's two outcomes. It may fix it, but then you have no idea what fixed it. You're like, I don't know what dial it was. You can't rewind. Secondly, you may fix it on one dial and then undo the fix. You actually have the resolution, but you've undone it. So you don't know if there was a resolution and you disregard what actually works. And of course, you could turn all the dials and, and nothing's fixed, but it will cause confusion. So you go, just exactly to your point, highest probability, turn the dial, did it resolve it or not? If not, you actually reset it back and go to the next one and turn it before you go to these combo deals. And you're most likely to find the resolution fastest that way. Mike, in your journey, you've uh, you've picked up a load of knowledge. If you look back, is there something you know now where you think, oh man, I wish I'd known that then. Or it would have been fun to know it then. Or it's not a it's not a look, it's not a look back in regret. It's just that that would have been nice. Yeah, not a regret. It would be nice to know that people speak the truth not through their words, but through their wallets. I used to believe what people would say. I say, hey, I have a new idea for a new product or service. 
I'm going to bring it out. I would tell people I know, like, that sounds wonderful, Mike. Go for it. I would buy that all day long. And I'm like, I found it. And then I would come to them six months later after developing this product and investing in it. It's like, here it is. You ready to buy it? And I'm like, oh, don't, I don't want it now. What I found is we lie to each other through our words because it's socially appropriate. We don't want to hurt someone else's feelings. We actually want to encourage people. But the real truth is spoken through the wallets. What I do today is when I'm introducing a new product or service, I'll go to someone and say, hey, I have a new product or service. Are you interested in putting down a deposit? And that's when the truth comes out. When people say, uh, no, no deposit, I know my idea is no good. When people say, yes, here's some money. Okay, I have something that they, they want to buy. People speak the truth through their wallets, definitely not through their words. I wish I knew that. <laughs> Fantastic. And what what books have been influential to you along the way other than other than your own? Oh, yeah. Well, the experience of writing books has helped. But I read regularly. This morning I was reading Anti-Fragile, fascinating study on how business, but also people have become more fragile. And as a result, the, the struggles we're experiencing. The I read this one book called Rejection Proof. This guy, his name is Jia, Jia Jiang. He came from China to the United States and was so socially afraid he wasn't progressing in his life. And, and one day he made this commitment to intentionally get rejected for 100 days in a row by asking absurd questions of others. And it's his journey of intentionally getting rejected. It's fascinating. It's funny. Uh, it's revealing. And uh, this guy becomes like, you just, want, you just want this guy to win. Um, so those are two books I've read recently that have further enhanced my perspective of the the human journey and the business journey and the, and the parallel of the two. Mike, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for giving you me your time today and, and coming on the show. Dominic, it's been a joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.